Hello, this is David Sangster, lead pastor at New Life Church. Thank you for joining us today for our podcast. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired. Enjoy the message. Welcome to the last week of Summer Baggage. It's uh, been a fun series, and um, I'm excited to, to wrap this one up. Nike Zoomex Vaporfly Next Percent. That's the name of them. Okay? 213 of the world's top runners wear those shoes. Okay? 65 of men, 65 of the men, and 148 women wear those particular shoes when they're doing long distance running. Why? Because they weigh only 6.6 ounces. 6.6 ounces. Now, these are light, but I weighed them, and they're not 6.6 ounces. They're heavier than that. 6.6 ounces. Okay? Runners have been trying to gain an advantage by dropping weight for thousands of years. For thousands of years. There are indisputable records going back to Athenian philosopher Plato in the 5th century B.C., and even uh, Homer's Iliad, as well as many drawings that confirm it was common common practice for male track and field athletes to take part in the Olympics nude. Completely buck naked. Though this is true, it wasn't always the case. It wasn't always the case. According to... Dionysius, a writer in the first century B.C., Greek athletes did not compete in the nude until the 15th Olympiad in 720 B.C. They, weren't, they, they, they didn't bear it all until the 15th Olympiad. Leave it to the Spartans, right? Those guys were sick in the head. A Spartan runner named Acanthus, Acanthus, yeah, <clears throat> was said to have set the fashion by appearing without the customary loincloth. It was said he realized that a naked man could run faster than an impeded loincloth wearer. That, my friends, is a dedication to the task. Runners have been dropping weight for a reason, because they gives them a competitive edge for thousands of years. Paul references this in his letters to the early church, 1 Corinthians 9. Don't you know that runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control and everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly. Hebrews 12.1, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And finally, in Philippians 3, it says this, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize 
of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. This whole series is about dropping baggage. And today, the title of this is Unencumbered. Unencumbered. What does your race look like? How committed are you to that race? And how much are you focused on the prize? Okay? The big idea for this message is this. Jealousy and social comparison are entanglements. But Jesus offers freedom when we leave the heavy baggage of envy at his feet. Social comparison theory suggests that people value their own personal and social worth by assessing how they compare to others. Introduced by uh, a philosopher, Leon Festinger, in 1954, the theory describes the comparison process people utilize to evaluate their actions, accomplishments, and opinions in contrast to those of other people. Okay, this is what we get the concept of keeping up with the Joneses. Your value, your worth is directly related to somebody else's value and worth. And if you can't measure up to that, you are less valuable. That's the self, that is the self-comparison theory. So this is tough. This is a, this is a religion that has its own set of tenets. You have to appease the gods of your neighbors in order to garner value from them. And that is a very, very hard taskmaster. The Old Testament account of Joseph and his brothers is one of the clearest examples of social comparison in the Bible. Open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 37. And there are so... (laughs) We talked about this in the rewind the other day. There are so many bad things about this passage. There are so much in here that is just dysfunctional and messed up. But we're just going to focus on the one, the comparison thing. All right? Here we go. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was, son, his son, uh, was a son born to him in his old age. And he made a robe of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. So they noticed that he had something that they did not have. And that caused them something inside of them to trigger and it caused them to hate Joseph. Now, Joseph didn't help himself at all. Verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told his brothers, they hated him even more. Oh, poor guy, he just had a dream. No, wait till you hear what the dream is. They hated him even more. He said to them, listen to the dream I had. Uh, there we were. Binding sheaves of grain in the field, suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Joseph, somebody needs to teach you when to keep your mouth shut. And I think that's exactly what his brothers were thinking as well. 
Are you really going to reign over us? The brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had a, uh, another dream. And you'd think he would have learned his lesson. But no, he's wearing the coat of many colors, which doesn't rub it in at all. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun, moon, and uh, 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had, he said. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come bow down to the, in the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Jealousy is built on self-comparison. It does something in us that causes us to act in ways that we would not normally act. Now, we don't use the word jealous as much today because it's kind of like kind of part of our culture. <laughs> to be jealous is to be American, I think, in some ways, right? Uh, capitalism in its greatest is to try to do better than the other guy. I get that. But here's the thing. Jealousy will eat you up. Now, here's the, here's the rest of the story. I'm going to paraphrase. Later on, Jacob sends Joseph to check in on his brothers. Now, what older brothers don't love when their younger brother comes to check in on them, wearing his coat of many colors, right? Well, come on, Joe, Jacob, get a clue here. But here's the thing. He goes, and they are so upset. They're, it's festering. They're so jealous about this Son, now there are so many problems here, parenting issues. Michael and I talk about it quite a bit in the rewind. It was kind of fun. But the, the Joseph is, the, is, is not being careful. His dad's not being careful. And it's really bothering his brothers. So much so that over time, this undealt with jealousy causes them to want to murder their brother. Murder him. You think you're going to rule over us? Try doing that from six feet under. The story goes on. He ends up being sold. That's way better. They sold the kid into slavery, and the, the, the dream comes true later on as he becomes the ruler of Egypt and all these types of things. But what we're focusing on today is the progression of Joseph's brother's jealousy to a point of I don't want to talk to you to I want to kill you. And you might think, that is just, that, that, that is extreme, Pastor. I would never get to that point. Maybe, but what about all the bad things in between that? They're not good for you. They're not healthy for you. They ruin your self-image because you are created in the image of God. So let's continue here. There once was a man who sat on a fishing dock and observed a bunch of live crabs in a bucket. While, uh, while, at the uh, uh, while all of them squirmed at the bottom, every now and then, one crab would crawl up the side in an effort to reach the top and escape. 
But each time it made its way closer to the rim, a crab from below would reach up and pull it back down. Then another crab would climb upward, and again, one crab from the bottom would tug it back down. One at a time, as the crabs tried to escape, other crabs would pull them back down in their uh, misery and the group's collective, to the group's, to the group's collective demise. Now, here's my thing. I don't think that crabs think. I don't think they're thinking, you know what, that crab, I ain't let him get out. No, they're saying, they're going, they're, they're, their instincts are kicking in, and they're saying, I'm going to use that crab as a rope to get myself out. I'm going to crawl over this crab in order to elevate myself and get out. But what happens is when you do that, you end up pulling what? Both of you down. Okay? Omar Atani, in his, in his uh, October 2020 article, Beware of the Crab Mentality, goes on to say, In philosophy, the behavior becomes known as the crab effect as a way to illustrate the selfish, harmful, and jealous mindset of some members in a group who will try to undermine and halt the progress of other better-performing members in that group. Well, that never happens in the church. <laughs> that never happens when, when somebody in the church starts to really come into their own. There's never a snide remark from somebody who might want to pull that person down, you know, get them off their high horse, so to speak. We've got to be careful, folks. We could take destructive worldly patterns and bring them right into the church. Got to be careful. The, the crab mentality says, if I can't have it, neither can you. And adds, here's what you and I need to realize. Sometimes we're the victim of the crab effect, and sometimes we're the instigator of it. You're uh, the one being pulled down, and sometimes you're the one doing the pulling. The Bible calls us to not play the childish game of jealousy. Rather, we are to love those around us. Now, notice how I said that. We are to love those around us. There are people who are going to be around you that don't love you. There are people who are going to be around you that are going to try to pull you down. There are people who are going to be around you that don't want to see you succeed. There are people that are going to be around you that are so damaged because of their own stuff that they cannot stand to watch you rise, to watch you have peace, to watch you find love, to watch you fill in the blanks. So what I said is this. The Bible calls us to play, not play the jealousy game, but rather we are to love those around us. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what thank of you? Even the Gentiles do that. Even the sinners do that. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you to get out of the bucket. Pray for them. That's tough. That is tough. 
Paul's first letter to the people of Corinth is culture shifting. And it talks about this love. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Remember, to the people around us, no matter who they are, let's just, let's just reiterate that, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Envy, envy, that's what we're talking about today. Is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, oh God, help me. And does not keep a record of wrongs. Every married couple said amen to that. Can we get there, please? Can we get there? We need to get there. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. See, describing the characteristics of love, Paul says that love does not envy and boast. The word for envy Paul uses is the word zelo, which means to burn with zeal, to be heated, or to boil over with envy, hatred, and anger. Why is this so... Why, 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 do you do that? I don't know. I don't know if I do that to that degree. But the culture that this letter was written to was known for that. Matthew Henry observes that Corinth's culture was very affluent. Interesting. You know what affluence brings? Discontentment. Studies have shown that the more affluent a culture gets, the more depressed it gets. That's weird to me. That the more affluent, the more that we have, the more we... Uh, you said it, not me. The more we have, the more we want. The more we have, the more we see what other people have that we don't have, that we need, so we need to get the credit card rolling. Because if I don't have it, they're going to look at me and say, ooh, that person doesn't have his stuff together. My, my father used to say this to me. He goes, he goes, look around, Dave. All these people have these beautiful cars. You think every single one of them bought those cars? No. But in order to keep up with the Joneses, in order to have the, the next best thing, they had to tap into the, the credit in order to get it. Get it? So here's the thing. The most affluent, because what I'm telling you is this, that the more affluent you get, the more you realize what's not there, what you don't have, and what other people have, which causes you to get into money problems, which causes you to be depressed, and then you can't have everything that everybody else has, so you're comparing yourself, and it's a vicious trap. The more affluent a society is, the more prone to envy, anger, frustration, which leads to depression. Corinth culture was affluent. It was, quote, unquote, lewd, noted for fornication, which is basically the, past, the possessing of things that don't belong to you. Paul was writing to instruct the church to stand against such cultural influences and remind the believers how they were to act in relationship to people outside the church those within, and those within their body. So here's the thing. I am not coming against affluence of our... We are so, guys, we are so blessed. We are so blessed. It's time we start recognizing it and thanking God for it. It's time to start looking at the prize, which is not the stuff, 
We are, listen, we won the lottery, folks. We won the lottery. We were born in this country. Some of you, uh, I was born in this country. Not all of you. I was born in this country. Listen, I was born in New England, one of the most wealthy areas in the world. I was born to a good mom and dad who loved me. I, was, I won the lottery, folks. You don't get to choose where you're born, who you're born to. I'm telling you right now. So I am blessed, and I, and I got to remember that and thank God for it. And stop evaluating other people's successes. We are blessed. You are blessed. It's time to start counting the blessings instead of comparing what you don't have. Start thanking God for what you do have. It'll bring you peace. In order to run our race well, we need to shed the excess baggage of comparison and jealousy. Keep our eyes on the prize. Run our race and not get distracted by the race others are running. You can't control people. Unless you're your kid, then you get like, no, you can't control people. Let me tell you something. Stop looking at what they're doing and critiquing their life and run your race. Be the example of the believer in word, in deed, in conversation, in holy conduct. Be the example of what it looks like to run the race well and winners attract other winners. That's how it works. <coughs> My grandfather, Bohannon, was quite an athlete. He played baseball, softball. Uh, did he play that Irish game? What is it? The, I, can't, I couldn't remember. I was trying to, you know, it's not like rugby. It's like uh, Irish, it was some weird game. Anyway, where you have, stick, you have a ball on a stick and you, it's, no, it's not that. It's, it, what? No, it's like, it's like, it's like lacrosse, but it's, I, it's drunk version because it's Irish. Anyway, um, so, uh, he played, anyway, he played, he bowled, he had all these bowling tropes and everything. He did all this with, with uh, lifelong double vision. He got hit by a car when he was a kid. It was a Model T, so it didn't hit him that hard. But he got he hit his head, he had double vision. And so I'm, I asked him, Grandpa, how do you know which ball to hit? He goes, just hit both of them. Because I guess they came in like, you know, so he just hit both of them. So I don't know if it was an advantage to him or <laughs> the ball was like this big. Um, but what he did really well is he loved, he, he was a good runner. He, was, he, he liked, loved to run in races and things like that. And I told him one day, I was driving with him from uh, my home to back to, to his home. It was kind of an hour and a half drive. And I was telling him, hey, I'm, Grandpa, I'm going to be running in a, uh, a, a track meet coming up. I'm going to be running the 100-meter dash. And if anybody knew my grandfather, you'd say, you'd, you'd say something like that, and then there would be a 45-minute story. Right, Mom? He had a story for everything, did he? He was awesome. Sitting around the dining room table with that guy was like sitting with Shakespeare. Not, well, not quite. Shakespeare with potty humor. Yeah. Uh, so here's the thing. He told me a story, and this was his story. He was all geared up to run this race. It was one of his first races he had ever run. And his, his coach had told him, don't stop running until you're like, uh, I think, 10 yards past the finish line. Don't stop running. Just keep running. So he was really fast. So he, he kind of measured up the people around him. 
And when the gun went off, he, he went like a, a, a bolt. And he was running, he was running. And what happened is he, was, he, he could sense that he was so far ahead of everybody that he, he did a little victory look to the side and the back. And while doing that, he caught his toe right before the finish line, and two guys went right by him. Oh. He goes, he told me, uh, David, that was one of the best lessons I ever learned. He said, don't look around. Keep your eye on the prize. Don't look at what's going on around you. Just keep your eye on the prize. Don't get distracted. Don't celebrate too early. That was his big message. Don't celebrate too early because as soon as you think you got it, guess what? You're going to trip and fall. That's literally the, the greatest story for pride goes before a fall that I ever heard in my life. He's literally fell. So we got to be careful that we don't do that in our race that we're running, that, we're not, that we could keep ourselves focused on what we're doing, run a really good, tight race, and not be looking around to everybody because that's when we stumble. That's when we stumble. Philippians 3 13 to 14 says, forgetting what lies behind, or I would say, for my grandfather's story, what's all around us? Forgetting what's all around us, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward calling in Christ Jesus. Do I have enough time? I do. I'm gonna, I, wanna, I didn't know if I had time for this story, but I love this story. Um, it's right out of the scriptures. It's, 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 it's one of my favorite stories about dealing with jealousy. And um, I was hoping I could get it in, and I think we're going to get there. So Genesis chapter 4, right at the beginning, right right in the beginning of things, Genesis chapter 4, we have this story of two brothers. Verse 3 says, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, scholars have often have, have tackled this concept a lot. What, what was so good about Cain, I mean, about Abel's offering, and what was so, so wrong about Cain's offering? Um, and I, I, th- I think I agree with the, with the theologians that, that say this, that sacrifice was already very well established in that time period. Remember when Adam and Eve um, first sinned? What had to happen? They had to have God made clothes from them from the skin of animals to cover their shame. So many theologians will say that that was the very first sacrifice to cover sin. So down the road, there was this understanding of what a proper sacrifice looked like as opposed to an improper sacrifice. Some theologians say Cain brought his very, uh, Cain brought rotten fruit to God and Abel brought the best. I don't think the text bears that out. I think Cain probably brought the best of what he had, but it wasn't the right thing because only the shedding of blood has the power to, to forgive sin. Okay? So this, this animal sacrifice was the proper sacrifice, and Cain didn't do it. Okay? That's, that's my understanding. That's how I, 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 I agree with those theologians that talk about that. So let's keep going in the story. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Everybody knows what that looks like. Everybody knows. Instinctively, you know. 
when your husband or wife walks in, they've had a bad day. Some people, that's just your resting face. I'm sorry about that. But, you know, you can tell the shoulders slump. The face kind of goes down, and the eyes don't connect like they should. There's a countenance fall. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your countenance falling? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Which, to me, confirms that statement, that, that, that Cain knew what he was supposed to do. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin, listen to this, sin is lying at your door. And the desires is for you, but you should rule over it. When we get into this comparison game and, our, and we allow our countenance to fall, we allow ourselves to be dejected by the comparison of other things, the, the feeling of not, being, not measuring up, and we don't deal with that well. Sin is crouching at your door. It's what happens when you get into this state. It's, it's so much easier to fall into sin. Verse 8, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass. Now, I want to use, I want to tell you what this word means. Uh, it came to pass is haya, okay, is the word haya. It came to pass, or it says in, or another way to say it is in due time. So here's what I, here's why I infer from this. God accepted Cain's offering, uh, Cain, uh, Abel's offering. Cain got mad at this, and Cain never did what was right. And what happened is that over time, in the fullness of time, in due time, it it drove him crazy. And that's what jealousy does. That's what that comparison thing does. It, 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 it ruins, it rots you from the inside out. And sin at that point is, is, is just ready to, to, to sink its teeth in. So then when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. A lot of brothers killing brothers in this sermon, or at least selling them to slavery. So here's the progression. Ready? Comparison leads to anger. If you don't take care of it well, if you don't deal with it properly. Anger leads to a fallen countenance or discontentment. Discontentment leads to despair over time. And despair leads to destructive behavior for yourself and others. I'm going to say that again. Comparison leads to anger. Anger leads to fallen countenance or dis, uh, discontentment. Discontentment leads to despair, and despair leads to d- destructive behavior for yourself and others. Let me summarize that for you. Ready? Sinful thoughts lead to sinful actions. Sinful thoughts lead to sinful. What is a? Is it even possible to have a sinful thought? I thought, Pastor, you said a few weeks ago that temptation is not sin. It's true. Everybody gets tempted. Even Christ was tempted. But to mull on sinful thoughts will, all, will lead into sinful actions. You can't allow that. You have to master it. You have to, take it. you have to take care of those thoughts and reject them. Or sin is crouching at your door desiring to devour you. Sinful thought. What is a th- sinful thought? Sinful self-talk is the enemy's way of leading you down a path to destruction. So what is that thought? Any thought that contradicts the truth of God. A sinful thought is any thought 
that contradicts the truth of God. Because a sinful action is an action that contradicts the will of God, the truth of God. So a sinful thought is a thought that contradicts the truth of God. That is a simple thought. Any thought that tells you that you are not loved, that's a simple thought. That you are not valuable, that's a simple thought. That you aren't good enough. That you're not pretty enough. That you are not dot, 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 enough. Now, that's not the only sinful thoughts, but those are sinful thoughts. Why? Because they contradict the truth of God. It's a lie. It must be taken captive and ruled over because God says you are loved. You are valuable. You are more than enough. You are beautiful to him. You are his child for whom he laid down his life. You can't just know it. You've got to live it. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself against the knowledge of God. Demolish them. Take them down. Get rid of them. They're, they're sinful thoughts. Anything that goes against the truth of God is sinful. So we demolish arguments and every uh, pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to do what? Make it obedient to Christ. So when you have a thought that says that, that envy comes in or comparison, when you're scrolling your Instagram feed and you're like, man, that, my friend over there has such a better situation than I do. Look, look, at her, look at her house. Look at her kids. Look at her this. Or, you know, that guy over there, he's got the job I wish I could have, and I hate that guy. <laughs> when you get that, you have to take those thoughts. You, the Bible says you have to master them. That means it's, it's on us in, in a lot of ways to do this. But it's not us trying to work ourselves out of a thing. It's us giving our thoughts and our, our mental patterns over to the will of God, right? To make them obedient to Christ. So when you have that thought, you say, no, I'm on my race. God is with me. God has blessed me beyond my, my wildest dreams. God is for me. You've got to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. If you wallow in them, it will rot you from the inside out. you got to drop the baggage. This is my, this, is, uh, this may be simply filling your heart and mind with truth. See, it's hard to replace the enemy's lies with truth that you don't know. You hear me there? It's hard to replace the enemy's lies with truth you don't know. So get into this and find out all the truth about what God says. Because when you know the truth, you can apply the truth to the enemy's lies, and the truth will set you free. It's exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness. But he knew it. Well, he had advantage. He wrote it. So, but he gave it to you to read it, to know it. And we, listen, I'm telling you, there is no excuse this day and age. None whatsoever. There's a Bible app that's free. There's like 100 million of them. Pick one you like. And then if you don't have time to read, put it on audio. There's Bible studies, free to, at, your, at your disposal. There's all kinds. Go to our website. There's opportunities for you to listen to past sermons. There's uh, Bible apps that you can download on the, on the, um, with a QR code that's right there. It's right in front of you. There's so much stuff. There's no excuse now. 
to not know what's in here. So maybe taking that thought captive may be just filling yourself up with the truth of God's word more than your Instagram account, more than your social medias. I, I wish I had it in this sermon. I don't have it in the sermon, but I was looking at statistics of how much people in general are on their social media accounts. The, the, the hours spent is ridiculous. I was talking to a man in vacation this past week, um, and he was ta- we were talking about social media, and uh, he said to me, and I, and I confirmed that I, 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 I've experienced this myself. He's like, I think it's crazy when... We go out and we just see whole families. I've preached that, haven't I? I've said that from the pulpit. But he said it without any, I've seen people at fam- families out at dinner and stuff like that, and nobody's talking to one another. Everybody's on their phones. And he, and he, and he, he we, we've been talking, and kids were playing, and we've been talking, and he said, what do you, are we doomed? And he, he, we, he learned that I was a pastor. So we asked the question, are we doomed? And then, of course not. Pastors know everything. No! I said, I don't think so. I said, remember back in the day when, there, when there, everybody smoked everywhere? Remember that? How many people remember being able to smoke in a movie theater? Raise your hand. How about on a plane? Raise your hand. Isn't that weird? That's weird now. That's weird. Can you imagine somebody lighting up on a plane? That would be weird. I mean, they give you specific instructions not to smoke in the bathroom, and it's a federal offense to, deal with this, to mess with the smoke detector. Remember that? Remember smoking sections? Those are the stupidest things ever. They were like, this section over here can smoke, and this section here. There's no wall. But it was, it was the precursor. Things happen in, in progression. I said, I, I believe that, because I'm the one who's been doing the research on it and the stuff, as research comes out to the dangers of overexposure to the, the um, data stuff we have, the phones and this. I, I believe that there's going to be warnings and all these things are going to come out because they haven't, because this, unfortunately, my kids, hi kids, you're the guinea pigs. They are. They're the first generation, this group of people are the first generation who never grew up without this. And they have been so soaked and saturated in this comparison culture that it's going to have, it's going to make problems. So as the culture starts to realize that these, these problems are going to, I think there'll be warnings. So he was like, oh, I never thought of that. That Hopefully I made him feel better, better. But we'll see what happens. Uh, we don't know yet. But it's not just the media. It's not just being on a phone. It's, it's, it's what's going on there. It's a comparison game. Discontentment is, is birthed. Everybody's like, pastor is so anti-technology. I'm not. I promise. I promise. I'm not. <laughs> All right. So fill your heart with Fill your heart with good things. These are going to show you the truth about God and and less on the other things. Feed the right dog. All right? Because you truly are what you eat. Another good practice is taking your jealousy captive by praying for those that make that feeling in you. If somebody around you, remember, loving all that are around us, if somebody around you is causing you to have that envious or jealous or... or, uh, Self-comparison feeling, pray for that person. It's really hard, it's really hard to hate someone you're praying for. 
So you could take that thought captive in that way as well. All right, let's land this plane. Ready? Looking over one shoulder and comparing your, uh, your race to the others is going to derail you. You're literally going to, your, your race is your race. You're running your race. Don't compare your race with other people's race. It's you and God. It will derail you. It is uh, mental baggage you must shed or it has the power to cause you to pull up lame. Keep your eyes on the prize of Jesus Christ. Bring your thoughts into submission to the truth of God's word. Pray for those who you compare yourself to and see yourself as valuable, unique, and a necessary part of the family of God. That's what God thinks of you. That's the only thing that should matter to us. This is not a simple, it's simple to say. It's hard to do. You have to literally struggle, fight, take captive those thoughts. But when you do, when you start living in the freedom of the race that God has put you on, you and God, man, it's like your feet aren't even touching the ground. Lord, thank you for this day. God, I thank you for this opportunity we have to, to, to tackle some of the baggage. This is only some of the baggage that we as humans often carry. That you never intended us to, to shoulder. God, I pray today that you would help us to see ourselves through the lens of what you said about us, how you see us, what you think of us. We are created in your image. Why are we looking at other people's image to find our own validation? God, help us to see ourselves as you see us. God, help us to practice the discipline of love. Loving all those who are around us. Being patient and kind and and not envying and boasting. All these things with those who love us and those who are our enemies. God, I pray today, Lord, that you would not let us linger in a place of jealous decay that leads to sinful actions. But you would pick us up and bear our burdens for us. That you would show us who we are in Christ. God, I pray for my church. I pray that this type of behavior and this type of thought pattern would decrease in the life of this church, New Life Church. That we would only build people up. We wouldn't tear people down. Lord, that we would be a shoulder to cry on, a leg up to what God has for other people, that we would encourage people and love people so that they can be successful in the race that you've called them to. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. To find out more about New Life Church or to plan a visit, go to our website at discovernewlife.org.